So today, um, knowing that this is usually a lighter day and also happens to be a transition day for us uh, because we're transitioning out of all things Advent and Christmas and moving into a new series. And so today is an introductory day uh, to give you a clue about where we're going in the next few weeks. Uh, and I hope that it'll give you a, a clear idea about uh, what's ahead for you and um, it should be fun. We're going to be taking a look at open and relational theology and leaning heavily on Tom Ord's book uh, by the same title. He just released this this past summer. Uh, Ord is a pro prolific author. He's written many, many books, contributed to many books, many articles uh, under his belt. Uh, he's uh, been teaching on the seminary level for a very long time. Uh, and this open and relational uh, framework that he has really is meant to be an umbrella uh, for uh, a range of related disciplines to be able to come together and talk to each other. So some of the other terms that might show up here are open theism, um, process philosophy, process theology. They all find a home under this larger umbrella of open and relational theology. And he's created a center with this. He's created a doctoral program uh, under this same uh, idea. And I just want to introduce you uh, to it. So as we get forward on this, uh, first I want to show you what most of you probably are more familiar with, and certainly most of the people in America are very familiar with, as there has been a prevailing conventional theology that's been with us for a very long time. So on the next slide, uh, just a few points that Ord uh, points out in his book. So I'm touching on a range of things in uh, his very first introductory chapter. So in conventional theology, you have the idea of a timeless God. Uh, not only is God within all time, but, but God somehow is in some ways already in the future and is not affected by time. And in some ways, the rules of time don't necessarily apply to God. Um, you have the uninfluenced God, and what that means is that God is unchangeable. There are some fancier words for this, uh, but this is a way to think about God as unchanging. And by the way, some of these ideas uh, flow right into our, our songs of our faith. So great is thy faithfulness, thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. But the idea behind that is we can trust in God's greatness because God doesn't change. Uh, God is unchangeable influenced uh, by the creation. Uh, he's just that big and that powerful. And we also have the notion of the controlling God. And this is a very popular still to this day, uh, even though we nuance it a little bit and work around it some. Uh, but there are still definitely uh, many who are very comfortable in the idea of God's control, meaning that essentially everything that happens is within God's will. Uh, a hyper-Calvinistic uh, approach to this would be to say, that everything that happens, everything that you do is exactly what God intended. It's God's will, whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing, it's all part of God's plan that is working together. And one day, it'll all make sense. So even the horrors of life that we go through personally or globally, uh, somehow will fit within that. So there's the controlling God thing. And I'm sure you've heard somebody say, maybe you said it at some point, God is in control, and it's a great statement of faith. And I just want to pause for a second and say that I'm giving you this as a contrast, not as, not as a bad thing. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'm not looking for a binary option here where, you know, this is what's behind door number one, and I'm going to show you what's behind door number two, which is really the right answers. That's, that's not where I'm going. Uh, what I'm respecting here is that uh, there are a lot of ways to understand how we relate to God. The things that are mentioned up here on this screen are some of the major tenets that are out there and probably very familiar to you. Uh, what I'm going to be sharing with you through this series is another way of thinking about things uh, that is equally sound, equally biblical, but just another option uh, to, to consider that I think might be helpful. Uh, so the next piece on here is the ultimate germaphobe God. That's Ord's language. And he says that we human beings are the germs. <laughs> so if sin is what is that germ, then we got to take care of that sin. And so there's a major thrust within the Christian tradition and Christian orthodoxy. And, and in particular at Christmas, it's often looked at sometimes as the primary reason that Jesus was born. Jesus was born so that someday he could die on a cross as a final sacrifice for sin so that you and I could claim that. So when God looks at us, he looks through the lens of Jesus, therefore does not see our sin because we're totally and completely forgiven and therefore welcome fully into heaven, which is a completely holy place because God is holy and cannot tolerate the lack thereof. So uh, that's, that's powerful. The idea that God is graceful and forgiving is wonderful. Who doesn't want to hear that? Uh, but in extreme, uh, sometimes it can come off that way. Uh, we have the intervening God, and what that refers to is uh, that sometimes God up there chooses to intervene down here. Uh, in the Bible, it was God was up there and choose, chose to intervene down here when he called Abraham to start this new thing uh, called the Jewish people. Uh, God intervened from up there down here when God called Moses to go free the people and did all the experiences uh, that are detailed in the book of Exodus. God came down here, intervened down here in the person of Jesus, and so on and so forth. So this is a God who's up there, intervenes down here. God is distant that way. Uh, not a part of creation, in fact. It's, it's separate from creation quite distinctly. And then we also have uh, the notion of the foreknowing God, that God knows the future. And there are some proof texts that give us this idea. Uh, if you want to look at the poetic side, uh, there's Psalm 139. Now remember, it's a poem. So this is a Mother's Day card that's going to go out someday. And, you know, the writer is saying, you know, you know, the you know the number of hairs on my head, which is challenging for God at times at the rate that they may be falling away. God, uh, the, the poet says, uh, you know what I'm going to say before I even say it. And we got to remember this is poetic language. But then if we want a little stronger case, um, you know, Jesus was asked by the disciples, you know, basically, when's the end coming? When's the, when's the final thing going to go down? And Jesus says, I don't know, but my Father in heaven knows. Uh, and the intimation there was, with great specificity, God knows uh, when everything's going to happen. Well, this is the foreknowing God, that God already knows how it's all going to turn out, going to know uh, when you're going to die, knew when you were going to be born long before it all happened. These are part of the constructs of the conventional theological framework. Uh, and then the final thing is, uh, while this seems at odds um, with what we know in Jesus anyway, is that part of the conventional theology is that, that God is angry, that God is angry about our sin and so needed to solve that. And even though it was done in a loving way, it had to be done because God's wrath is what it is. 
and it had to be satisfied. And so that's why Jesus died on the cross and the whole substitutionary atonement idea. Uh, and then even this is a kind of a departure and, you know, the way I understand scripture and how I treat it, I treat it as sacred text, but not perfect text, not inerrant or infallible, uh, but definitely sacred. And it's, it's a body of work that informs all that we do and is critical for, for faith understanding. But one of the realities of the Gospels in particular and of the New Testament in general is that they brought their context with them. So they had their sensibilities about the way things were, the way things uh, ought to be, and that also included their apocalyptic hopes and dreams. And so we don't know exactly um, what to make of some of the statements, given um, the statements that were made. So you have Jesus who's talking about how one day he's going to come back, you know, in glory in the clouds. That's more of a revelation thing. And in that, in that scene, Jesus isn't coming back to give us all a warm hug. Jesus is coming back with a sword to wipe out all the people who aren't his. And all of us are rejoicing because we got the pass. Maybe we're already in heaven before it all happens, but that's one of these realities that is a real point of tension. Because on the one hand, we want to believe that God is really loving and we love Jesus being a, you know, the great boyfriend. But then when we see this, other side where we just have to wonder, is this Jesus the man speaking in very familiar apocalyptic terms? Is this the disciples remembering him say that? Is the disciples wishing he'd said that? And that's their view that they wanted to include in this to their new communities. How do we understand that? All of these, as you're probably figuring out, are intertwined with how do we approach scripture? How do we understand theology? And here's what I want to say briefly about that, that it's all in flux, and it always has been. From Genesis through Revelation, you don't have one biblical theology. You have multiple theologies at work, nearly in every work of the Bible, all of the books. You have contrast in the New Testament. Uh, even within the Gospels, there's some contrast. And between Peter and Paul, there is some nuance that's distinctive to each. That's important to realize, because while we have the Bible and we call it the canon, it is the rule, it's the measure, it's the, it's the container of, of those ancient pieces that we want to keep just as is, the very tradition of Jesus, which I'll get into in a moment, was to keep thinking in new, fresh ways and encouraged his disciples to do so. So we're not looking for that right answer. We're not looking for who has the right theology. We're asking the question, how do we make sense of God? How do we make sense of the world? What is helpful and what is not? What things do we need to let slide, let go? And what new things might we want to embrace given all of our history and our experience, and what we know now that they never could have known before. Part of the challenge with conventional theology brings me back to Clara. Clara H. Scott, who wrote that song, Open My Eyes That I Might See. 
Claire H. Scott uh, lived a good life. Uh, she was born and raised in the Chicago area. Her parents sent her to a music school and she became a composer. So not only this hymn, but she created many and they are actually put into a pamphlet and she actually had a pretty good sales uh, with this thing in different churches around Northern Illinois and, uh, and Eastern Iowa is where she lived most of her life within a hundred mile radius of there. And um, while she was in Iowa, she moved to Iowa uh, with her husband, and they lived um, well, not too far away from Dubuque, Iowa. You people who know where Iowa is, <laughs> it's one of those flyover states we talk about here in California. <laughs> Grew up in Kansas, I can get away with that a little bit. Um, so anyway, uh, that's where she lived and breathed. And uh, after her husband became uh, invalid in the words of antiquity, uh, they moved back to a suburb of Chicago, uh, where she was from, and uh, that's where they intended to spend the rest of their days. A friend of hers died in Dubuque, and so she chose to travel with a friend uh, to attend that funeral. On her way back um, by horse-drawn carriage, which she was controlling, uh, on her way back from Dubuque, Iowa, and route to Chicago, um, something broke in the mechanism. I don't know. I don't know the language at all with this stuff, but something broke and all of a sudden it made such a loud sound that it startled and spooked the horses. And they started running uncontrollably and ran into something and it flipped the carriage. And Clara and her friend died instantly. When things like that happen, when things like a really good person who has devoted her life to creating prose and music to put together for us to sing hymns that help connect us to God. It's very difficult for us to have a reasonable answer for that. Why did this happen? We're kind of okay when it happens to people we hate because they had it coming. <laughs> so we tell ourselves. We don't even bother with theological questions when it comes to people we really dislike. But for people we care about or revere or love, when terrible things like this happen, it raises lots of deep questions. And when we turn to conventional theology, sometimes the answers don't really satisfy. In the first chapter of his book, which is an introduction, on the next slide, uh, we see a range of things that he goes over just to bring them to our attention in case we struggled to think of any difficult issues that theology must answer to. He talks about rape. He talks about the threat of hell. He talks about prayer, like why do it? If God is in control, and if God is already foreknowing, why in the world do we even need to pray? If it's already figured out, <laughs> what's the point? And by extension, if it's already figured out for me what my steps are going to be, what day I'm going to die, and how, and all the details therein, and every step of my way is basically predetermined by God, what is the point of my life exactly? Am I just a gerbil for God uh, on planet Earth? And he's enjoying watching me take a spin? <laughs> is, that, is that all there is? It's... Prayer is a complex question. The example he gives on the LGBTQ front is uh, Gary and his husband have two kids that they've adopted that they want to raise in the faith. And immediately you know that for most churches that's going to be a problem. 
How do they wrestle with that with their children when most churches will not accept their lives and who they are? What do you do with that? Uh, of course, for two years almost, we've been, we've been asking why with COVID. And some, some people from the more conventional uh, side of things, they very clearly articulate from their pulpits that this is clearly the beginning of the very end times we've all been waiting for. And all, everything's coming together. And it's going to happen soon, so get your house in order. Make sure, you know, you, you've asked for forgiveness as much as you know uh, how to ask for forgiveness and have your friends and family and the people you care for to do the same because it's all coming down and all the signs are there according to that. How does that feel, though? Does that make any real sense? Does it, does it add up? And again, I want to say this, that for some, a conventional theology really does work. And so I don't want to rob that from you if that's really working for you. And to me, the way we know whether or not it's working is, are we drawing nearer in intimacy to God? And in the Christian tradition especially, are we becoming more like Jesus? Do we look more and more like Jesus? And so if the conventional framework is cutting it for you, that's great. But in my experience, uh, there were some real difficulties in sorting things out. And what I found was is that at the end of the day, when it came to really tough questions, like those that are listed up there, the mystery card was always played. It's like you could only get so far, and then you just had to say, well, you just have to trust God because it's a mystery. We don't know why, why Clara died on the way home from that funeral. There's no good reason God knows it's a mystery. We don't know why this tragedy or that tragedy happened to you personally. It's a mystery. We don't know why God allowed God's own people, the Jews, to die by the millions in the Holocaust. Somehow God's got a plan. It's a mystery. And we have lots of atrocities that at the end of the day, the best thing that can be brought forward is you just have to have faith because God's in control and it's a mystery. And one day we'll see clearly and it all makes sense. We'll, we'll agree with it all. But right now, you just have to have faith. And I have to say, uh, and I, I'm not belittling this. Um, I'm telling you that it's not, it doesn't work for me, but I know this works for people. And I know it gives them great hope and confidence. I've seen people face down death, their own and other people, just in this beautiful, simple, I don't mean simple in a bad way, I mean simple in a, a simple, not complicated way, a childlike faith kind of a thing, again, in the very possible, best possible meaning of that. I mean, no, I'm not disparaging this in any way, but in this, in this pure, innocent faith of just saying, I'm just trusting God. I'm trusting that God's in control, and it's going to be okay. And there's a real beauty to that, that I respect and I honor. But I know in my own life, uh, I came to some other uh, challenges that made this difficult. So on the next slide, I want to talk a little about uh, Jesus and what he did. But before we get to Jesus, on your bulletin, I just gave you a few scriptures here 
Uh, one comes from Luke. This isn't on the screen. Um, this is just a reminder of where we've been from Advent, just to help us transition. But remember the story. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you're to name him John. Well, that was nuts. God had been silent for 300 years. No Jewish person had heard the word from God. And now, all of a sudden, he's not talking to a priest, but a deacon, you know, in our language. And not just any deacon, he's talking to a very old deacon who's way beyond uh, having children years, way into retirement. And now he's saying, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> who would have guessed it? And he does a similar thing to Mary. You know the story. Who would have guessed that a peasant girl, young woman, would be the one who would, who would be the one, you know, to bring this child into the world in this mysterious transaction that we're still debating about? Who would have guessed that the lowly shepherds watching their sheep that night would be the ones to get the choir concert? And who could have ever guessed that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you know, uh, heaven sent down, made flesh, finds himself in a stinky barn with who knows what on the ground, with stinky, unclean animals, and what's his cradle? A manger, a feeding trough. <laughs> None of this makes sense. None of this fits. None of it. Nobody could have predicted this. Only in the most general sense did anybody, well after the fact, start to say, well, there is this here and there's that there. But nobody with this kind of specificity would have said, this is what's going to happen. Because it was so out of the box, this was a paradigm breaker. And that serves as an allusion to the rest of what's going to happen in Jesus' life and ministry. Because he goes into the world, once he turns about 30 or so, so he's, you know, in his more mature years at this point in that time in history, he starts tackling very big questions as a deeply informed, deeply connected to God person. He's asking questions like, where is God? Is God just up there in heaven or is God actually here among us? And the things that he says startled people. He, he gets into what is God's core characteristic. Turns out it really is love. How does God interface with creation? And what does that look like? Uh, and does God care? Is God moved? Is God truly unchangeable? Or is the heart of God affected by creation itself, by humanity specifically? And how do we understand God's power? It's a very interesting question, which we're going to get into later, because you remember, you know, so if we have Jesus who is, uh, you know, purportedly, depending how you do the equation, uh, either is God walking around in human form, or it's a human person who is so infused with God, so welcoming in the presence of God, that it's as much of a pure conduit of God as we've ever seen before. Either way, the power and the spirit of God is flowing through him like none other. And yet in Nazareth, his hometown, the all-powerful, omnipotent God was powerless. What do we do with that? What is that? How does that inform our theology? How do we understand and apply scripture? <laughs> there, there are so many times when Jesus raises eyebrows because he's giving a new interpretation to scripture, a fresh take which means he's breaking paradigms. How do we address oppression and injustice? Uh, Jesus did that in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. 
and he gets into this thing. We think Jesus is talking about being a nice guy when Jesus says, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and all that stuff. We just think that's, that's just being a good neighbor. No, it's not. He's actually talking about nonviolent resistance to the empire in those statements. They were radical shifts for people. They're taking notes. They're like, oh, this is how you do it. This is how you hold accountable the very, very rich and powerful when we got nothing. This is what it looks like. Well, that was a major mind blower for people. And then, you know, another question is, how do we live with hope amidst despair? And Jesus certainly spoke into that. What I want to say about Jesus as he was reforming and refining things and blowing apart boxes is that it was never easy. It never came easy. Remember, it got him killed. <laughs> it, got, it got his hometown angry. His very first sermon when he reminded um, his, his homies, uh, so to speak, uh, that, that he, was, he was there to do what God wanted to do and that that may include other people than just Jewish people. Remember their reaction to that? It wasn't to take up an offering and give them a bonus. It was, let's take them to the edge of town and throw them off a cliff because they didn't want to hear it. They weren't ready for that. That's a, that's a pretty tough response from a church, by the way. Just a quick pause. Thank you for being an awesome church because we, we celebrate questions here and you're very stretchy and we can, we can have that kind of flexibility here, which is wonderful and refreshing. But it was so hard for Jesus and his disciples. You know, we'd like to think that if Jesus came back today and started all over and was doing his thing, that we'd just be right behind him, applauding him and just falling right in line. No, we probably wouldn't because he'd be, he'd be barbecuing our sacred cows and saying, why, why are you limiting God in this way when God is this way? And we would be frustrated. We'd be walking around. You'd be coming up to me after we'd hear Jesus talk and said, Pastor Pete, did you hear what Jesus just said? <laughs> How are we supposed to think about this? And I'd be, I'd be right there with you. It's like, I have no idea. I've never thought about it this way before because that's who Jesus is. That's what the Spirit of God continues to do throughout history, continues to expand our thinking and blow our minds and increase our paradigms. And it's never, ever been easy. Tom Ward, like so many uh, like him, found out the hard way um, that when he started to speak too much in contrast to conventional ideas, he lost his job. There are many great scholars who've lost their jobs and highly respected institutions simply because they said, I wonder if there's another way to think about things. I wonder if we have to, if we have to buy all of this in the conventional uh, rubric, or if there is another approach that is allowed under the umbrella. A uh, number of summers ago, I was having a conversation with my oldest sister, Becky. We were up at my uh, family's cottage in northern Michigan, and we were talking theology, and uh, there, we have so many shared uh, things that we both value. But I remember Becky saying this, this beautiful thing when we were talking about stretchy theologies and this kind of thing and controversial things. And her statement to me was, you know, I know that God's umbrella is very, very big. And I think that's really, really helpful. That connotes respect. It says that, you know, there's not one theology that owns it that has so defined it so well that we're done thinking anymore, that there's room for thought. And there must be, because we're not the same all over the world. We're all in different contexts, and we see the world 
quite differently. So these are some of the things that Jesus did, and that's all just to say that the kind of things that we continue to do in talking about this different perspective is right in line with the footsteps of Jesus. The disciples did this, by the way. I think there were some things that they did that even Jesus would have been like, whoa, I can't believe you guys actually tried this and pulled this off. Never thought to be quite that inclusive. Never thought to minimize the, the Jewish law and the Jewish law keeping down to basically two. Never thought to do it that way. So I think he would have been proud of them at that point. Well, where we're going is to take a deeper look at the things on the next slide. And I'll just briefly go over them, that God is open and the biggest eye-opener maybe for you on the God is open uh, piece is that God does not know with certainty under this framework, God does not know with specificity what the future holds. He knows everything there is to know. So God is all-knowing in the sense that God knows everything that is knowable, but the future is not knowable so long as you and I have free will. So long as we are actually making choices of our own free will in response or reaction to things, God has hopes, God has an end game in mind, but God does not know for sure how it's going to go. It's kind of like parenting. When we have a kid, we have hopes and dreams for what's going to happen for that kid. We hope the kid grows. We hope they become adults. We hope they find happiness in their life with career and work and friends and family and all those wonderful things. But I could in no way have predicted what was going to happen all the way through for my children because there were just way too many variables. And even God cannot control or predict all of those variables. So this is a nuance of God being all-knowing. The nuance is God knows all that there is to know, and that's different than the future. Uh, God is relational. The biggest uh, whopper on this one that is fun to chew on is that not only uh, does God relate to us, and God obviously affects us in very powerful ways at times, but the flip side is also true, that if we are in a genuine relationship with God, we also affect God. And not just us as individuals, but all of creation. It's connected in some way that God feels with us. That in a sense, we are, are some of the receptors of God's feeling in the world. And this gets a little heady, but it's a very profound, different way to think. And that's a, this changes, by the way, the unchangeable nature of God. Because what it's saying is that if I'm in a relationship with God, that means I'm affecting God. That means I am changing God somewhat by my experience being shared with God. Deep weeds, I know. This next word, omnipotent, uh, Tom Ward made up. And it, uh, it means loveified power. Loveified power. That ami is a representation for the word love. So it's a nuanced understanding of omnipotence. And what it essentially means, which he really unpacks in one of his seminal books, The Uncontrolling Love of God, which Lauren Haas introduced me to, thank you very much. Um, it means that when it comes down to it, we have to make a decision. Is God all-powerful or all-loving? Because they cannot both be true, given the state of reality in the world, logically. And so what Ord says, what Ord suggests, and others like him suggest, 
is that God's extreme power, the most powerful being anywhere, uh, is nuanced by love itself. That there are some things that restrict God's power because of God's love. That's just a teaser for what's coming up on that. God is present. God is not up there, but God is here with us. We've been talking about panentheism, which is different than pantheism. Panentheism, you remember, means that uh, he's got the whole world in his hands, and he's actually in the whole world. And we're a part of the whole thing. We're in God, God in us. We cannot escape it. Wherever there's creation, it's there. And finally, uh, that God is loving. And God takes that loving extremely seriously, so much so that he gives you and me and every other human being on the planet the freedom to choose out of love. And that helps explain why really bad things happen in the world. Because some people do not choose love. And because of God's love for that person, even though it's causing other people harm, he has to honor it, has to respect it. One of the reasons why I love this is because as I've processed through this stuff over many years, I find that this makes a lot of sense, that a lot of what he says makes a lot of sense, and it doesn't overly appeal to mystery. Of course, there's going to be mystery in the world. If the, the day that we have figured God out is the day that, <laughs> that we just should realize we don't have God figured out. What I mean by this is rather than just throwing our hands up and saying, it's a mystery, uh, for every another big question that comes up that we can't get our brains around. The mystery card here with open and relational theology says, let's say I'm praying for Bruce over here. And for whatever concern he has, wants to win the lottery, wants the Giants to win, which we should all be praying for at all times, or the Warriors, or the Niners, uh, pick whichever team I agree with. Anyway, uh, so we're all praying for Bruce's request. Now, uh, when I'm praying for Bruce's request, I'm praying that you know, everything of God in me, around Bruce, in Bruce, all the variables surrounding Bruce that bring anything into the equation are all being nudged by God, being led by God toward redemptive purposes that are in line with God's person and character for Bruce, even if it means his prayer request changes a little bit because all of these things come together. The mystery point here is we have no idea just how far those variables go and what our influence is, what is keeping God from being able to do everything God would hope to do in the world because of all these different things that are going on. It doesn't give God a pass. It actually lets us, in some ways, empathize with God, that there are some things that God would absolutely want to do now. But there are things in the creation that God set up that restrict those things from happening. And that's a mystery. And so it's a nuanced thing. Uh, this is somewhat semantics, but I think it's deeper than that. And, you know, the final couple things is if this stuff is, is helpful to you like it's been to me, it gives my life a lot more meaning and purpose. It helps me understand God more, but it also gives me meaning and purpose in my life much more than the simple God is in control, and I'm just going to trust God that all the steps that God has for me are just exactly what they're supposed to be. There's no chance for me to be a puppet, and there's no responsibility for God to be the puppeteer. 
I have agency in the world. I have responsibility in the world. My prayers make a difference. My life makes a difference. Everything makes a difference, which makes the following of Jesus all the more important if we believe that he really did show us the way to life, life abundant and life with God. That's powerful for me. It makes faith incredibly compelling because it's like the world is like right here and it all matters. As a closing thing, and I hope you get a chuckle out of this uh, like, like I did. Um, when, when the song, Open My Eyes That I might, May See, uh, came to my attention um, last week, because I'm getting stuff to DAR to print things off, it just popped in my head. And I'm like, yeah, I like that song. That was one of my favorite hymns. So yeah, let's, let's put that in there. That'll be a good focal piece for us in meditation. I didn't know that she spent the majority of her life, if not her entire life, in the same zone geographically as both of my grandfathers spent many of their years. Uh, If she'd have lived longer, she died in 1897. She'd have lived just a couple more years or 10 more years. Who knows? Maybe on some country road, she would have run into my grandpa Shaw. Maybe, Maybe if she'd lived another 20 years, and she took a, a riverboat downstream on the Mississippi. Maybe, maybe she'd find her way into Muscatine, Iowa, and find my other grandpa's uh, family uh, there worshiping together. Uh, that was a cool connection point for me, that I know that geography very well. My first church uh, was within that zone, and I know it well. Went to school in Chicago. I know that whole zone well. So there was some resonance uh, there with me. But then I also studied a little bit more uh, and found out about her tragic death. And I thought, man, you know, her very story is one of the whopper questions that this theological perspective helps give a satisfactory answer. It doesn't make us all feel good, but it helps us get our brains around things more uh, than, for me anyway, than the more conventional uh, way of thinking. But then I also did a little bit more research about what was going on in history at that time. And there was a movement happening in the the United States uh, called the Holiness Movement. Uh, It really got its founding on the East Coast in New Jersey, but one of the largest representations of the whole, the largest representation of the Holiness Movement in the United States was in Iowa between 1850 and the early 1900s and, and beyond. It actually gave the foundation for what became the Pentecostal movement, which originated in the United States and went global. The holiness movement was all about tuning in to the very spirit of God. How is the spirit of God going to move us, speak to us? Which was a new, profound, bold thing to do uh, back in that day given their time in history. This was a grassroots kind of thing. This wasn't the elites on the East Coast thinking their way to this. These are real, normal, everyday people who are saying, I think God is alive. I think God wants to speak to us. And if we just listen, if we just quiet ourselves enough, if we just listen to Claire's prayer, silently now I wait for thee, ready my God, thy will to see, open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. If we would just do that enough, we just might actually hear God speak. And God spoke, which was another stretch of paradigm, started to open new ways of thinking, which were difficult for the status quo to understand, embrace, and go forward with. Actually, they're still fighting to this day. And then the more I learned about the holiness, this actually flipped the trigger almost immediately. 
because uh, when I when I learned, and I don't think I ever learned it before, but when I learned that the holiness movement had to have been affecting her very deeply, just based on her geography, I was reminded of a conversation I had with Tom Ord, my first conversation, which was an, well, not my first conversation, but an interview I did for Crosswalk, when we were going to have him come out and talk about God can't stuff. And we were talking about some details of when he was going to come out. He was supposed to come out right at the beginning of the pandemic. He's now going to be with us at the end of January to come and be with us. And I was telling him, hey, you know, this is Napa Valley, and uh, we've, you may have heard of us. Uh, we've got some pretty cool adult things to do, uh, just a few wineries maybe, and we'll, we'll definitely set you up with some good wine and have some good food, and it's going to be great. And he just kind of laughed, and he chuckled and said, well, I'm afraid I can't drink any wine. Uh, because I'm a Nazarene, which is in the holiness tradition, <laughs> and therefore I can't drink any wine. So here I am just feeling this little nudge, you know, last Wednesday or Thursday or whatever it is that, hey, I, I think let's go with open my eyes I can't, so that I can see all this stuff, just thinking this is just a nice little song for this, when perhaps there was more to look at here. Perhaps this is its own little thing of God working into my life for you and for me to say, maybe there's more happening here than we could imagine, that I don't even need to know about it necessarily. Maybe I just get to discover it like I did this morning when I finally Googled <laughs> the, the background story of this hymn and Clara. I hope you get a chuckle out of that like I do, because I don't think it's just this crazy little coincidence kind of thing. I think God is active in the world. And are we sensing what God is nudging us toward? And are we saying yes to the nudges of God, which are going to lead us toward redemptive purposes that are always going to look like the footsteps of Jesus, which lead to abundant life, which lead to hope, which lead to confidence that life is more than just this life. This is what this framework brings to us. And I hope that you're up for the journey and that you'll join me in musing about all that this brings. That's all I got to say. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's pray together, then we can be on our way. And so God, as we uh, bring our time today together to a close, I am confident. How can I not be? Now you're nudging all over the place. You have to be. You're in on everything. You're with us as close as our next breath. You are our next breath. We don't, we're not quite sure where spirit ends, flesh begins, because you're just that close. You're that with us. And if that's true, if, you're, if you really are always at work, if you're always speaking to us, what might you be saying? What might we have missed? What might we look forward to hearing? So God, at minimum, I pray that we will continue as we have in the past to have a spirit of openness, to wonder, to reflect, to dialogue with each other about what things might look like, about how we might grow in our understanding of you that could really be helpful, not just for intellectual points, but because it actually makes our relationship with you more accessible and brings our lives into focus in a more compelling way. That's my desire, God. I think it's in line with the footsteps of Jesus, who just walked so closely with you. 
That's why we choose to end our time together with a prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. Hope you had a good experience. We will see you next week. Thank you.